Well, good morning, everybody. I'm glad to have you back for another morning of uh, worship together. Um, I trust you enjoyed the music. If you haven't seen that, you really need to follow the link uh, attached to this video and have some time of uh, worship and song with your family. Thanks to Mark and Becky and Hannah as they did that for us every single Sunday. Uh, so go ahead and get a chance to get your Bible right now. This is an opportunity for you to go do that. You're going to need it. We're going to go through a lot of scripture this morning because now that Lent is over, we're back on our series that we've been doing going through the book of Revelation. And today we start Revelation chapter 18 and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 8. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to go ahead and read scripture uh, together. Uh, Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to study your word this morning, Lord, in our homes with our families um, the opportunity to talk about it later with our friends. I pray as we study your word this morning, Lord, as we study uh, the importance of having a heart that loves you and loves your kingdom more than we love the rest of the world at large. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would bless us um, with a devotion to you that, that transcends everything that the world might throw at us. Uh, we love you, Jesus, and thank you for everything you've given us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So go ahead and pull out your copy of, of God's Word this morning, and we're going to look at Revelation chapter 18, uh, verses 1 through 8. I'm going to throw it up on the screen there for you so you can read it with me. Um, and, and it says 18, 1 through 3 right now, but that's just because you're reading it in the, the sections that I've split the sermon out into, but I'm going to read it all together as a unit, and then we'll study it together. Um, so Revelation chapter 18, starting in verse 1, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great has fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her just as she rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works. And the cup which she has mixed makes double for her. In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen, and am no widow, and will not see sorrow. Therefore her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine. And she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. Well, isn't that an uplifting passage? Uh, it actually is. Um, we're going to study it today, as, as depressing as it may seem, to talk about judgment and destruction. Uh, there's, a, there's a great message of hope uh, for God's people and a great warning in it for those who would rather have the goods of this world than spend their time investing in, in the next. Um, so let's go ahead and dive straight in. First, I want you to see that God's justice is thorough. God's justice is thorough. What does it mean to be thorough? Uh, all that means is it's detailed, it's comprehensive, that there's nothing left out, it's, it's total. Um, so God's justice is thorough. Let's read the first three verses again, or at least look at them. The, the first thing that, that John, who is the author of Revelation, sees is he looks down, or he looks up and he says, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. Very clearly, this is an angel of a high rank. Uh, this is not just any angel. This is an angel that, that seems to dwell in the presence of God, that um, any glory that an angel has is, is glory that just reflects the glory of God. Uh, so it's, it's not a, a self-sourced glory of this angel. So this is an angel of a high rank who spends the majority of his time in the presence of God. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great 
is fallen, is fallen. Now, it's, it's, he says Babylon the Great is fallen, but what's interesting in this passage is this word's actually in the aorist. Um, it's, it's a tense in Greek that we don't have an equivalent to in the English that is not a past tense. That's, it doesn't have to be past tense in Greek, but more often it is past tense in Greek. Uh, a lot of times when you see it used about an event that has yet to occur, is it's almost kind of a, you don't want to say prophetic, because it's, it's not saying in a predictive kind of way, this is going to happen. Uh, what it is, is it's saying this event is going to occur, and it's so certain that this event is going to occur that we're going to speak of it as though it already has. So when the angel says Babylon the Great is fallen, and then the angel is about to tell us all the things at Babylon that are about to happen, uh, the angel is, is not saying, I am prophesying that this is going to occur. The angel is saying, is no, this is about to happen right now, but I'm speaking about it in certainty because it's not avoidable. So Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen. Now notice too that he mentions it twice, that the fallenness of Babylon is mentioned twice, that uh, this is to convey certainty, it's to convey thoroughness, that there is no part of Babylon that's going to escape this, um, that it is thoroughly fallen. Now, what is Babylon? We're going to talk about Babylon a little bit more. Does it mean a city literally named Babylon? Maybe, maybe not. Really no way to know. Uh, I do believe that this is a future city. This is a city that is not, if it exists right now, it doesn't exist in the same sense that it will exist uh, when Revelation 18 is occurring in real time. John is seeing this as a vision of future events. Uh, so the city of Babylon, while the name Babylon may be a symbol, refers to a real city that will exist as the seat of Antichrist's power at some point in time future. And the angel is saying this city, whether it's named Babylon, whether it's named something else, this city's time is up. It is fallen to such a degree that I'm going to say fallen twice. Uh, and then look at the next thing the angel says, and has become, again, this is an immediate future event, but the angel is describing what the result of Babylon's fall is going to be. It says it's become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. Uh, now, we can come back to, to demons and foul spirits, but I don't really think we need to because I think we know what a demon is and we know what a foul spirit is. Demons, foul spirits, not human beings, and certainly no one would be concerned about the cleanliness of demons or foul spirits. We know that they're evil, we know that they're wicked, that there's, there's not anything good about them. But what about these hated uh, birds, uh, unclean birds, uh, disgusting birds? What are they? Well, in the Old Testament, typically why birds were unclean is they were carrion uh, birds, that they were scavengers, that they would come and eat dead bodies. Uh, so yeah, I know that's disgusting. That's probably you're probably watching this after breakfast, and your pastor, why did you have to talk to me about birds eating dead bodies? I just read what's in the Bible. So uh, that's probably what's happening with these birds. Is these are unclean and hated birds. Uh, they're hated because they're carrion birds. So what's going on here? Well, I'm not going to throw this up on the screen because this is not uh, biblical. This will. Maybe I shouldn't say that. This is not from the text of Scripture. This is actually from the New American Commentary on the book of Revelation. That This is the New American Commentary's explanation for what's going on here. Babylon has now become a home for demons. 
At first, this disclosure may seem strange since the subject is the destruction of the city. However, the angelic point seems to be that the judgment is so climactic that nothing good and nothing human can remain. So the destruction of this city is so widespread and so thorough that the only things that can live there are demons, unclean spirits, and birds that eat dead bodies. Uh, there's no human life going on there. There's no culture. There's no joy. There's no laughter. There's no fellowship. Uh, there's no life there. The, the judgment is so destructive and so final that there is no goodness or life even remaining. And then the angel tells us why the judgment of God is so severe on this city. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. I'll leave this on the screen while I kind of put in basic terms what the angel is saying here. Uh, that first, he says, the one of the reasons for Babylon's fall is that all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, this word fornication here, uh, I think, really has a threefold meaning. Uh, scripture kind of attests to the meaning of this word. There's obviously the, the physical meaning that uh, Babylon, this city, this culture, is sexually promiscuous. Uh, so there's that type of fornication. Uh, there is spiritual uh, fornication. That uh, Sexual immorality is typically used as a metaphor in Scripture for spiritual uh, immorality, going off and chasing idols and false gods rather than remaining faithful to the one true God. You see how the adultery metaphor uh, plays in there, that God is the one true God who deserves our love and affection and attention, and when we go off and chase other gods, it's akin to committing adultery and infidelity. So there's physical fornication, spiritual uh, fornication, and then economical. Uh, what in the world? Well, I'm going to throw economical in here, and then we'll see exactly how this works out when we look at the next two. But typically what happened in the ancient world when there was a world power that took over, and, the, and Rome was famous for this, is that Rome would come into a new area, they would exploit what resources it had, and all of its wealth would go to Rome. Or in the case of the original Babylon, we'll see this in just a minute as we look at Babylon's origination in Scripture, is that Babylon was always about centralization, that everything came to Babylon, it was for Babylon's glory, we didn't want it scattered everywhere else. So there was this idea of kind of exploitation throughout world empires throughout history where wherever they went, they would take the wealth and the resources of that place and they would kind of suck it in to its, its capital, to its home, to the great disadvantage of the people that it exploited. Uh, so that, that is actually an issue here, that all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, that nations are suffering as a result of the behavior of this city, of this culture. So first, the world has suffered as a result of her fornication. Second, other nations have joined with her in her fornication. That says the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. That Wow, I'm really using that word a lot. It's very uncomfortable. That other nations have looked at the way this city Babylon functions, and they've kind of taken its model as its own model. That we're going to exploit. We are going to, to traffic in whatever we have to traffic in in order to bring wealth and prosperity to ourselves. And we're going to set up relations with Babylon so that we can get some of this wealth too. That we're going to buy into this model and, and take it to heart and make it part of the way we operate. So other nations have joined with her in this spiritual, physical, and economical immorality. And then finally, merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. That this is no longer just at the state level. This is now just in the in the commercial level. That this is no longer a 
a policy. This is a lifestyle that business is built around this Babylonian model of selfish enrichment, exploitation, wickedness, evil, immorality, that it's, it's seeped its way into uh, the general population. Uh, so as a result of all of this wickedness, this, cruel, this cru uh, cruelness, uh, this violence, that finally the sins of Babylon have piled up to a degree that God will tolerate it no longer. And so this angel has come to pronounce judgment on it. So Babylon has kind of always in Scripture tended toward this selfish centralization at the expense of humanity's God-given mission. Well, what is that God-given mission? Uh, look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. This is a, a famous passage in Scripture that describes the creation of the first humans. So in verse 26 of Genesis 1, then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now pause for just a second. Whose image is humanity created in? It's, we're created in God's image, right? You'll remember the famous uh, event in Jesus' life where the religious leaders come to Jesus and say, Jesus, we just want to know, because we know that you're a truth teller, that you, you speak the truth, you teach well. We just want to know if, if we should pay uh, the taxes to Caesar or not. You know, should we do that? And it's really a trap set up to try and get Jesus to, to tick off one group or the other, because if Jesus says, yes, pay Caesar, then he's going to lose his religious followers. And if Jesus says, no, don't pay Caesar, then he's going to bring the heat of the Roman government down on him. So they're trying to get him to humiliate himself. But Jesus doesn't bite the bait. And he says, you hypocrites, bring me a, bring me a denarius. So they bring Jesus a, a, a Roman coin. And he asks them, whose image is on this coin? And they look at it. And, and if you, can, you can look it up. Google it. You're on the internet. You're watching this. If you look up a denarius, it'll have Caesar's face on it. Um, depending on who the Caesar was, it would be a different face. And they say, well, Caesar. So Jesus says, give to Caesar that which is Caesar and give to God that which is God's. The idea being Caesar's image is on the coin. So you give the coin to Caesar. But whose image is on you? Clearly, according to Genesis 1, God's image is on you. So you belong to God. You exist for the glory of God. That when God says, be fruitful and multiply, he wants his image to multiply. When he says fill the earth and subdue it, he wants it filled with his image and subdued under his image. To have, He wants his image to have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That God didn't give this command just because he said, hey, lots of humans would be cool. God gave this command because we're made in his image and he intends all of creation to be covered in his image. In the same way that Caesar stamps his image on a coin, so it's his, God wants us to stamp his image onto creation. So that's why he gives us this first, uh, very first command here. Right as we begin to exist, it's to fill the earth with his image. But the very first Babylonian civilization in Genesis 11 flaunts this command. In Genesis 11, 1 through 4, now the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone. They had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be, what church? Scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. 
Now, isn't that exactly what God wanted? That God wanted them to be scattered throughout the whole earth. God wanted them to fill the earth and subdue it because He wanted it filled with His image. He wanted His name to be made great. But this city wanted to make a name for themselves. Rather than spreading out, they centralized. Rather than filling the earth with God's glory, they wanted to fill the plain with their glory. That there was this flaunting of exactly what God wanted them to do and God did not endure that. That God came down, he scattered that out. That's what happened to the first city in Babylon. Okay, it was Babel. You know it as the Tower of Babel. That's where the name Babylon comes from. Babylon has done this over and over and over again. As you see it throughout scripture, it is continually centralizing and seeking its own glory, building its own kingdom. This brand of rebellion has been in humanity since shortly after our existence. We tend to seek our own glory, to want to build our own kingdoms, to flaunt the commands of God and and just kind of keep to ourselves rather than spread God's glory everywhere we go. There's coming a day, though, where just like the original Babel, God will no longer tolerate that type of lifestyle, a lifestyle that just completely eschews his command to fill the earth with his glory and seeks to build its own glory. Uh, There's a warning that we're given in uh, Hebrews chapter 12. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on the earth, Much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice shook the earth. But now he is promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken. Now pause there for a second. If you go back and you look at Genesis 11, Babylon was not destroyed. It was scattered that its citizens went all throughout the world and spread this little Babylonian ideal that let's build kingdoms for our own glory. And that's exactly what humanity has done ever since then. And kingdoms fall and kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall and kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall and kingdoms rise. But eventually there's coming a day where God says, I'm done with this. This kingdom is not rising again. This rebellion is not rising again. I'm not putting up with it anymore. That I shook the earth once, I will shake it again. Yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken. The thorough destruction as of things that are made. That the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom, that is us, those who know Jesus Christ, Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. What's the point of all this? Why did I go through all this? Think back to what the angel said about this city, Babel. When God destroys it, there's nothing left. Human life cannot persist in it. There is not a shade, not a shadow, not a building block, not a Lego left of what it was before. When you build your own kingdom and you push and you push and you push and you ignore and you ignore and you ignore and this is my glory, this is my kingdom, this is my world and you push and you push and you push and you, and, and you distance yourself from the command that God has for you and you keep believing that, well, God's let me get this far. Yeah, I may have some setbacks time and again, but eventually I'll crawl back out. No, there's a day coming where God's not going to brook that anymore. And Scripture warns you, be very, very, very careful playing with that. 
that when God judges, his justice is thorough. There will be nothing left. So what does the author of Hebrews tell you to do? Come to Christ so you can receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Now, I'm going to actually uh, have to pull out my phone right now in the middle of this sermon and text the policeman who is outside wanting to know if the lights in the church on right now are me. So hold on just a second, because if I don't do this, he's going to come in here and want to make sure I'm okay. Yes, I'm in here. Thanks. There you go. You see, this is happening live and Stapleton's finest are out looking for us. So build your kingdom uh, and eventually it will get torn down. Seek the kingdom that will not be shaken. Seek the kingdom that will not be shaken by searching for Jesus Christ, who is there to be found by you if you'll just call out on him seeking mercy. So first we see that God's justice is thorough. Second, I want you to see that God's mercy is limited. Pause for just a second before you panic and say, wait a minute, I've always been told that our God's a God of second chances. Our God's a God of third chances. Our God's a God of fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh. All of that is true, that God is a God of first, second, third, fourth, fifth, twelfth, seventy-seventh chances. But don't misinterpret what I'm saying. The question is, to whom does God's mercy belong in the end? To whom does God's mercy belong in the end? And the answer to that question is a limited group. God's mercy belongs to a limited group. Look here at Revelation chapter 18, verses 4 through 5. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. So, let's stop here for just a second. That God gives his people two warnings. The first warning is, if you stay inside Babylon, you're going to share in Babylon's sins. Uh, that The idea is, you can only, what is it that, that Proverbs says, can a man clutch fire to his bosom and not be burned? Um, there's a reason that Paul says for certain sins, you don't fight them, you don't resist them, you run from them. And Babylon is just full to the brim with that kind of sin. That God tells his people, don't fight the sin in Babylon, don't resist the sin in Babylon, don't stand in Babylon and speak truth to power. Uh-uh, get out of there. Because if you stay in there, you're going to share in Babylon's sins. And then second, God says, if you share in Babylon's sins, you will receive of her plagues. That if you do the crime, you do the time. So God says, best best thing for you to do is to just get out of Babylon entirely. Uh, why? Because her sins have reached the heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. So the judgment that Babylon's going to receive is Babylon's judgment. But if God's people stay in Babylon, then they're going to end up caught up in the sin and therefore be caught up in the punishment. So the solution is for God to tell his people to leave, get out, and have nothing to do with Babylon or her punishment. So God's merciful in that look at what he tells his people. He tells his people, come out of her. He's giving them an opportunity to escape. He's giving them an opportunity to not experience the discipline and punishment that is going to come upon Babylon. Uh, so that's actually God's mercy at work right there, that you get a warning to leave. That's what God's mercy looks like, that God gives you an out. God's mercy is not that he is just going to say, oh, well, I'm just not going to destroy sinful Babylon because 
somebody's going to get hurt. That's not God's mercy. God's mercy is, I've provided you an escape. You don't have to be destroyed, but you need to understand that I'm going to destroy this sinful nation. I'm going to destroy this sinful people. So you have two choices. You can either listen to me and come out and live, or you can ignore me and stay in here and die. God's mercy is limited to those who actually listen to him and take advantage of it. Come out of her, my people. So how do we know who God's people are? You say, wait a minute, I don't like the idea that God has one group of people that he favors and they get his mercy and this other group of people don't get his favor and they don't get his mercy. Well, that's only unfair. Uh, <laughs> well, I hesitate to even say that. That argument is only even potentially uh, strong if the people get no choice in the matter. But the fact of the matter is they've had choices the entire book of Revelation. They've had the ability to listen to God or to ignore God this entire book, this entire Bible. Let me give you a couple of examples from the Old Testament uh, so that you can see uh, exactly how this works. So uh, if you think back to the book of Ruth, was Ruth an Israelite? Those of you who know your Bibles will know that Israel is not an Israelite. She was a Moabite. And this is what Deuteronomy 23 has to say about Moabites. Uh, verse 3 says, An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Pithor of Mesopotamia to curse you. There's a lot of fancy names in there, but basically what God is saying is, if somebody's a Moabite, they are not coming into my assembly. I will have no Moabites amongst my people. No Moabites amongst the Israelites. Well, that's a big problem when you consider that Ruth is a Moabite. So did God lie? Did God change his mind and start accepting Moabites? Absolutely not. Do not disrespect Ruth that way. Ruth was born a Moabite, but she is not a Moabite. Look at what happens. Ruth chapter 1 verses 14 through 17 this is right after Malan and Killian, uh, uh, Naomi's uh, sons have died. They lifted up their voices and wept again. This is their, their widows. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, look, your sister-in-law, this is Naomi speaking, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her guides. That Orpah went back to Moab and started worshiping Moabite gods again, if she ever stopped. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. Now listen to this. In the ancient world, this was a way you could tell who's, what God someone worshipped. It's whose name they took oaths in. This is a common formulation for taking an oath in the name of the Lord. Ruth says, the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts you and me. Do not call Ruth a Moabitess. She was not. She left Moab and became an Israelite. She forsook 
everything about Moab that there was. She did not call herself by the name of Moab. She did not worship Moabite gods. She did not live by Moabite customs. She left Moabite land and she went with her mother-in-law Naomi and came back into Israel and never looked back. So do not talk about Ruth as though she is a Moabite. She left a cursed people and became one of God's people. And that option exists for anyone. You can leave Babylon and you can become one of God's people. Jesus Christ provided the sacrifice for that. You can come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I've been living my entire life in Babylon. I've been living my entire life in this sinful world and I've been part of it and I've been built by it and I've been surrounded by it and I've been dirtied by it. I've been a part to it, but I want to come apart from it and I want to be part of your people and leave all of that behind me and I want to come out of that city of destruction and walk your path to your city, and Jesus will accept you instantly. You can leave that all behind to become a new creature in Christ and not be called by the name of that old life anymore. You can do that. Anybody can do that. It's not like you don't have, you're stuck in Babylon and you're going to be destroyed and you don't have access to the mercy of God. The question is, what do you want to do? Do you want to leave Moab behind and go to Israel, or do you want to just go back to your old gods and your old people and stay there under judgment? This is the last we hear of Orpah, but we hear of Ruth all the way into the New Testament because she makes it into the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That the grace of God is incredible. That God's mercy is limited. It's limited to the people who listen to him. I'll show you what happens when you don't listen, even when God offers mercy. So when you, when you hear about Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, you know, these words get thrown around as, as almost pop culture references, that they're uh, very famous uh, in, in Christian scripture uh, as cities that were so wicked that God destroyed them with fire and brimstone from heaven. But God had a slight problem that uh, Lot was in this city and Lot was not a part to his sin. And he is a just, or Lot was not a part to the city, the sin of the city. So God, being a just God, did not want to destroy someone who was righteous along with the wicked as though there was no difference. So God sends angels to come to Lot and to his family and tell them, you need to get out because God is about to destroy the city, but we're going to give you some, some stipulations. When you leave, you need to run away, and when you run away, you need to not turn back. Do not look back at all. Let it go. Let it burn. God's going to destroy it. Don't long for it. Don't miss it. Don't want it. Don't look back. Well, this is what happens. The Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But his wife, that's Lot's wife, looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. Seems like an odd punishment. Seems like an odd judgment. Don't know why God decided on a pillar of salt, but I know I don't want to turn into one. There's nothing good about a pillar of salt that's any better than what I am now, so I would prefer to keep my skin, bones, and lungs. Thank you. Um, that seems like the death penalty in some way, shape, or form. Don't want it to happen to me. But the idea is that Lot's wife looks back missing what they had in Sodom and Gomorrah. She didn't want wherever they were going. She didn't want where God had prepared for them. She wanted to go back to this city that God was destroying. She missed it. She mourned it. She didn't want to let it go. And this is such an iconic passage that no less than the Lord Jesus himself references it in Luke 17, verses 31 through 33. 
Jesus is talking about the final day of judgment in Luke 17. Go back and read it. He references the flood. He references Sodom and Gomorrah. And now finally he references this day in the future. It says, in that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take him away. Likewise, the one who's in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Isn't that uh, just out of nowhere? Inserts that in in verse 32. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. That Lot's wife didn't want to lose her life, her lifestyle, the way she lived, what she owned, her Martha Stewart curtains, her Corningware casserole dishes. She didn't want to lose mama's porcelain. She didn't want to lose her comfort. All of the trappings of her life in the city of Sodom. She didn't want to lose. And so when God said this city is wicked and I'm going to destroy it and I'm going to move you somewhere else and you're going to start over there, all she could think about was what she was leaving behind in the city that God was going to destroy. And so when she looked back, she lost the ability to enjoy anything that God was going to give her in the future because she received the punishments that Sodom got because she didn't want to leave it. So if you want to experience God's mercy, the way to experience God's mercy is to listen to Him. It's not to ignore Him and then cry out for God to show mercy because in the day you ignore Him and 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 then judgment finally comes and you cry out, God, please have mercy. God, where are you? God, why won't you help me? The answer is that He did help you. He did hear you. He did offer you mercy and you chose not to listen to it. So listen to God now while you have the opportunity because those who listen to God are the ones to whom his mercy is limited. They get it. The ones who don't listen to God and who disobey him and rebel against him, they're the ones who had the opportunity to receive God's mercy but chose against it. They don't get it then later after they have chosen against it. So God's mercy is limited. Now, if that's scary, maybe that's a good thing. Ask yourself right now, God has offered me mercy. Am I taking it? Because if you're not, the, the day will come when you ask for it and you won't find it. Then finally, God's judgment is fair. God's judgment is fair. Uh, let's read verses 6 through 8. The Revelation chapter 18, verses 6 through 8 says, Render to her just as she rendered to you. And repay to her double according to her works. And the cup which she has mixed makes double for her. And the measure she glorified herself and lived luxuriously. In the same measure, give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. Therefore, her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine. And she will be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord God who judges her. Now look at the, look at the top of this. It says, render to her just as she rendered to you and repay her double according to her works. In the cup which she has mixed, Mitch mix double for her. Uh, now there is a principle of the Old Testament law of that's fancy academic name is lex talionis. And all it means is it's been popularized as an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The idea of the Old Testament is that if somebody put out someone else's eye, then the punishment for doing that was you put out that eye on the person who did the eye putting out. So if I put out your eye, you get to put out mine. Um, that 
that was a very controlled way of the punishment always fitting the crime. Now, this was revolutionary <clears throat> in that uh, in the ancient world, you might say, well, wait a minute, that's, that's, that's kind of scary. So if someone was responsible for the death of someone else's children, does that mean that person executed the other person's children? No, Lex Talionis actually forbade that, that only the person who did it could suffer for it. So no one else could suffer from my crimes. Only I could. And the punishment for my crime was limited to what I did. So if I stole from you, there was a prescribed penalty for stealing and I had to give back what I gave you. Um, if I injure you, then I was only liable for that injury. For instance, if I broke your arm, you couldn't cut my arm off. Um, you know, so there was kind of a limit there. That was considered just, and it is in fact fair. Um, fair is not always fun, but fair it was. Uh, so how does God get to be fair when he says, as she rendered, repay her double? As she has mixed, mixed double. How is God just when he is giving more than she has done? Does the penalty fit the crime? The answer, absolutely. Yes, the penalty does fit the crime. Let me explain why. Uh, now, I'm not going to throw this up on the screen, but you can get your Bible and you can, you can look for it. In Leviticus chapter 27, in verses 18, 21, 24, and 28, God is talking to Israel uh, and telling them, this is what you get if you listen to my covenant. Here are the blessings you get for obedience, but here are the curses you get for disobedience. And every time they don't, they continue not to listen. The first time they don't listen, God says, this is what your penalties are going to be. And then in verse 24, or then in verse 21, he says, if you continue not to listen, I'll increase it sevenfold. Then in verse 24, he says, if you continue not to listen, I'll increase it seven more times. And then in 28, he says, if you continue not to listen, I'll increase it seven more times. So the principle that's being established there is the longer you persist, in disobedience, and the longer you put off repentance, the more heinous your crimes are and the greater punishment we deserve. The longer Babylon went without repenting, the more her penalty became. So double could actually be seen as merciful because God has done more. But it's still utter destruction. The longer Babylon went without repenting, the worse the punishment became. And ask yourself, how long has Babylon gone without repenting? Babylon has been doing the same thing since Genesis 11. Since Genesis 11. The exact same sin. And not only did they sin themselves, when they fanned out, they took this lifestyle with them. And it has been pervasive in humanity since that point. Every single nation in the world has done this in some way, shape, or form that we centralize and seek our own glory rather than making our mission filling the world with the glory of God. That is the sin of Babylon and humanity has been complicit and guilty of this since Genesis 11. The only way out is for God to change the human heart. Look at what Paul says in Romans 2, verses 3 through 6. And this is a warning that carries on not just to the city-state of Babylon, but to every single human being that walks the earth. In Romans chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, Paul says, Do you think this, 
Oh man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same that you will escape the judgment of God. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? What does it mean that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Why is it that God has not destroyed every single last one of us already? It is because God is good and God is merciful and he wants to give everyone an opportunity to repent. So right now you're listening to this little guy on this little video, whether it's a Sunday, Monday, Wednesday, whatever. You're listening to me on this video tell you that God loved you enough to send his son Jesus to die in your place, that your sins made you worthy, not just a physical death, but eternal death and separation from the goodness and love and peace that comes in the presence of God. And you were to be damned to a place called hell forever, eternally. And you will be in God's presence, but you would be in the presence of his holiness, his wrath, his justice, and not his mercy. That you deserved all of that. I deserved all of that. But God didn't want you to suffer that way. So he sent Jesus to take all of his wrath on, on him that you should have had. He punished Jesus on your behalf so that if you would call out on King Jesus and say, Jesus, I need your mercy. I'm a sinner. I don't deserve to live. I deserve to die, but I believe that you suffered and died in my place, that you were crucified on that cross for me, that you were buried for me, and that you rose on that first Easter Sunday for me, and that I want to rise with you one day, and I want to live with you forever, and I want you to change my life and take me out of Babylon. God will do that for you right now. You don't have to wait. Just pause your video and call out on God to save you right now. If you've got any questions, send me a Facebook message. Send me an email. Send me something like that. I will get back with you. I've watched these things. You know, I, I want to make sure that if you've got questions, I can help you with that. But you don't have to come to me. You just go straight to Jesus and ask him to save you. But Paul says, don't you understand that the reason God hasn't wiped you out is because he's giving you an opportunity to repent. But if you decide not to, listen to what he says in verse 5. In accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. That the longer you go without repenting, just like Babylon, the longer you go without saying, God, I want to be in that group that experiences your mercy because I listen to you. The longer you go knowing that God's justice is thorough but not running away, the longer you go, the more wrath you are storing up for yourself in the day when the righteous judgment of God in the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed. And I don't want you to suffer like that. Neither did Peter. Check this out. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8-9. through 9. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering, patient towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That Jesus wants you to repent and be saved. But if you don't listen, that will not happen for you. You've got to go to Jesus Christ and say, forgive me, save me, take me out of Babylon. I don't want to be part of that kind of living. I don't want to be part of that kind of culture. I want to be one of your people. I want to be a citizen of heaven. I want to be a child of the king. And God will do that for you. 
All you have to do is ask. You can do that today. Just cry out and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, and you can come out of Babylon. Cry out to God and he'll save you. If you've got any questions about how to do that, reach out. I'll be glad to follow up with you. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to make a couple of announcements, and then we will be done for the day. Father, thank you so much uh, for these men and women uh, who are listening today, these boys and girls who are listening today. Uh, Lord, I pray uh, that you would glorify yourself in saving somebody, saving some of them. Bring them out of Babylon. Bring them into your people. Um, Lord, if there are any of them that have questions about that, Lord, give them the courage to reach out, and I'll be glad to speak to them. Um, but Lord, just work on them right now and save them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, I want to make a couple of announcements here. Let me see if my hotkey will work. Uh, yeah, here we go. So uh, if you're watching this on Facebook, I invite you to please come check out stapletonbaptist.org. Um, right there on our website where so we keep all of our information about what things are canceled, what things are open. You can find our blog there where we're reading through Pilgrim's Progress as a family. Uh, you know, maybe you've seen this on Facebook or something like that. You can read through it with us. I've got links there to free copies of the book, um, which is completely and totally legal and legit because that book has been out of print for several hundred years. Uh, so you can get that from either Project Gutenberg or even Amazon for free in some cases. So got links there. You can contact us there. You can join our email list there, which I strongly encourage everybody to do. So check out everything we've got at stapletonbaptist.org. That's where you can also download the handout and the audio version of this message. Um, also, you're probably already watching this on Facebook, but if you're watching this on the website and you have Facebook and you don't follow us there, go on over to facebook.com backslash stapletonbaptistga and you can follow us on Facebook and that'll be where you get all the breaking news as quick as it breaks. Uh, so go follow us over at facebook.com backslash stapletonbaptistga. Um, I so much appreciate all of you spending this time with me on Sunday morning or whenever it is you're watching. If you've got any questions, please reach out. We love you here uh, at Stapleton Baptist. If there's any way we can help you, uh, we'd love to do it. Um, so uh, I hope you guys have a great Sunday, uh, and we'll see you here Wednesday night for Bible study next time. Love you guys. We'll see you later.